Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Music critic David Stubbs on his book Future Days, Krautrock and the Building of Modern Germany. David Stubbs joined the music magazine Melody Maker in 1986, where he worked for 12 years. His most famous creation, Mr. Agreeable, periodically reawakens over at the Quietus. He has also written for The Guardian, The Enemy, The Wire, When Saturday Comes and Uncut, and was a presenter on the Resonance FM football show Café Calcio. David is the author of numerous books, including Fear of Music, Why People Get Rothko But Don't Get Stockhausen, which we discussed on a previous Little Atoms. And his latest book is Future Days, Krautrock and the Building of Modern Germany, which we're going to be talking about today. So, David, welcome back, first yeah. of all. Yes, love to be back. Um, let's first of all get this term <clears throat> Krautrock out of the way. Yeah, absolutely. It's somewhat problematic, yeah. right? It was problematic, and yes, and I felt it's, you know, define your terms, very first thing I had to do, because... On the one hand, I think the, the, the actual bands themselves, you know, the remaining surviving members, they bridled somewhat at the mention <laughs> of this word because obviously they come from a time when they considered it deeply insulting. And in fact, you know, when he was ringing up or whatever, or you know, occasionally trying to get contact, you know, making direct contact occasionally mm-hmm. with one or two of these people, they had to sort of say, um, "Yeah, I've, uh, write a book about cr- um, experimental German music of the late 1960s and early 1970s." You know, he couldn't use the dreaded K word. But you can't... It's unavoidable. It was coined, actually, subsequently, after I wrote the book, Simon Draper, who went on to work for Virgin Records, he was kind of working in marketing at the time. He claimed that, in fact, he and his people, as it were at the time, they, they coined the term purely so that, like, this music that was emerging, all these groups like Can and Fast, you'd be able to kind of go directly to a, a rack in a record shop and find them. It was a similar thing with world music, which, again, is a sort of much derided and scorned term. But I met... Roger Armstrong who's had Ace Records and he was involved in the coining of it and he said look it's just a rack in a record shop before the term world music was coined these records you know want to find this great singer from Algeria you wouldn't know where to start so- it does seem like that I mean in that painful way that you see on the internet now where middle class white men are the last minority you can have mm-hmm. a go at sort of thing it does seem like Crowd rock is almost that you you wouldn't get away with that for any other nationality. You, you know, you absolutely wouldn't. I mean, and I mean, as I say, no, it, it, there is something inherently appalling about it in the context of the times. Just imagine, like, if Jimi Hendrix, if somebody said, "Hey, this is great. Let's call it speed rock." You know, or if it were in the French, let's call it frog rock instead of prog rock or whatever. I mean, it's obviously it was well-meaning. You know, it wasn't it wasn't seen as derogatory, though it may have been interpreted as being mm. derogatory. But it, you know, in terms of the sort of that there was still that abiding cultural hostility, you know, between the UK and, and Germany. Um, I think it was it was definitely well meant, but of course, you know, at the time it was also difficult because people German bands had to endure a lot of condescension from the UK press and headlines like "We have means of making you listen." And you can imagine sub editors as soon as they kind of were faced with the prospect of a German band in the music paper, you know, as 
combs going right under the noses and like goose stepping up and down you know the corridors of the office but it was well meant oddly enough and but another thing is of course the word has now become very commonplace Mm -hmm. and there's now a very different attitude about 40 years on towards things German, which is post-David Bowie, I think, actually. There was something inherently comical about Germans making rock music pre-David Bowie, sort of having his Berlin mm-hmm. phase and what have you. Post-David Bowie, anything sort of Germanic had a certain cool about it, you know, so you get in especially that post-punk era and you get bands like names like Bauhaus emerging and, you know, the new Teutonic cool or whatever. And, and these days, Krautrock, I think, has been sort of semantically cleansed. It doesn't have those kind of old kind of say, No one talks about the Kraut anymore. We can talk about the Bosch or Jerry anymore. I mean, that, that's a beyond to a previous generation. So it's a very, very cool and much bandied word or whatever that, is so, that you really have... To, you, you can't avoid using it. Mm-hmm. And so what I did when you knew some Krautrock, I tried to sort of, as it were, invent my own... Uh, come up with my own definition of Krautrock, which is a bunch of very diverse bands but with very common properties, mm-hmm. which is to do with kind of innovation, use of electronics, uh, and not great, em- not as much emphasis on sort of the vocals and the upfront vocalists, reconfiguring the whole way in which a, a rock band is arranged. Um, you know, things are also essentially rejecting the Anglo-American blues-based model of mm-hmm. making music. Uh, they all have that in common, but they all in, in, in a very different way. Well, let's talk about what gets left out then, because I want to talk about the, sort of, the historical and the political context mm. of when this music was being made. But let's first of all talk about the musical context. So in Germany in particular, mm. what else was going on that this was different from? Well, essentially, there were two things going on. I mean, and it, this is West Germany as opposed to East yes. Germany. There was such a thing as Ostrock in was sort of separate sort of rock history in East Germany, but it's but it, with entirely different sort of cultural sort of imperatives or whatever. So in West Germany, of, you know, there was in, in literally metaphorically, you know, there was there was occupation. So you had the UK and US based troops there, or whatever, and they go out to dances and things like that. And so in certain areas, they put on predominance of US troops, and they would probably want to hear Motown type things, soul or country, or whatever. And then other areas where it was UK based troops, and they would essentially want to listen to Beatles type stuff, you know. And so there was a band called the Rattles, you know, who were a sort of obviously a bit like the Rattles, really, you know, who were a kind of clearly Beatles inspired combo. So that was one thing that was going on. And the other thing that was going on, of course, was Schlager, which was this kind of very sort of Eurovision-type formica folk pop, which I think was common to a lot of other countries, really. You know, this, and, you know, as I say, it tends to emerge really in Eurovision song contests. You know, sort of Tupperware, sort of romantic, sort of bucolic romanticism about, you know, the country of origin that's sort of, you know, heavily diluted folk with a kind of sort of banal pop sheen. Um, the only thing is, in West Germany, it had a certain connotation. It was a bit like what they called Heimat film. You know, there was a sort of industry of like making films that were kind of nostalgic about sort of twenty or thirty years ago for a kind of sort of rural Germany, in which somehow or other the you know the unfortunate events of nineteen thirty-three to nineteen forty-five was mysteriously erased. And this is a kind of music that's kind of very nostalgic, and wistful, and like you know, an idyllic, but a certain kind of rural-based German life which recent traumatic events are completely airbrushed. So there's two things going on. So on the one hand, you've got this sense of, like, you know, the new music being kind of imported, like a kind of cultural martial plan or whatever. And then on the other hand, you've got the music that represents this culture of amnesia. And I think that for, us, for quite a lot of musicians, or in various ways, but certainly all of the musicians that, you know, write about in the book, they felt that it was deeply humiliating you know, this idea, and I think they felt that there was it was their responsibility as young Germans to kind of reconnect with the great sort of traditions of invention, and that you know was kind of part of almost like their sort of German sort of, you know tradition and heritage. So consequently, the first thing you had to do was reject the Anglo-American sort of blues-based thing, and that consequently meant approaching making rock music in a very innovative way. And obviously it meant doing something that was antithetical in spirit musically to the, you know, to the whole Schlager thing. So it was, it was going to be very sort of hippie-based. It was going to kind of have very, very sort of different trapping from that particular music. So let's talk about the... I mean, you've already mentioned it a bit, but the political context mm. at the time. So the time period, it's sort of post-war, but we're, yeah. we're in the... You cover sort of, what, the mid-60s to 77, roughly, mm. in this book, and this is when this... I don't really know how to describe it. A movement, it's not really a movement, genre. Mm. it's not really a genre, but these they're sort of groups, and again, we'll get on in a moment to why you've grouped these groups mm. together, but this period that you cover, roughly mid-60s to the mid-70s, it's obviously before the Berlin Wall comes down, oh, the yeah, East yeah, and yeah. West Germany, yeah. 
Uh, but as you've also mentioned, they're still they're still at the tail end of the occupation, really. Of, of certainly yeah. American soldiers are still there. Yeah, absolutely. And but I suppose, obviously, in about '68, I mean, in common with other countries, in common with both, you know, in the US and certainly France, whatever, there was a sort of great sense of revolution, upheaval. And one of the kind of catalytic events was the shooting of a protester. I think the Shah made an official visit, mm-hmm. and the protester was shot dead. And that was a kind of catalyst for a lot of kind of student activity and students. And that really sort of helped give an emerging counterculture its kind of political edge, you know, and there was a lot of sort of literature, sort of manifestos. Eventually, all kinds of things happened, and, you know, obviously it was reflected in, in literature, in, in cinema or whatever. So, for instance, someone like Frank Zappa was kind of a touchstone. Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. And he produced an album in 1967 called Absolutely Free, and in, there's a song with Plastic People, and one of the verses is like, What's the Nazis run your town? Now, of course, he's talking about, it's a bit like California Uberites, you know, he's using the term Nazis in a sort of metaphorical way, you know. But these, in West Germany, actual Nazis were running actual towns, the out-Nazis. So the sort of the general sort of wave, revolutionary wave, you know, that was occurring you know, between sort of students of that generation, um, had a particular resonance if you were young and West German. You know, you, you really were, on, you know, still under the thumb of the Nazis. Mm-hmm. There were specific sort of issues that you were addressing. As, a, as a, somebody just coming of age in the late 60s, all of a sudden you're inevitably finding out a little bit about what happened in the Second World War. You're probably sort of divining, leaning a little bit about things like the Holocaust. And then you're stunned and perhaps you're going back home and saying... Mum, Dad, Grandma, Grandad, you never mentioned anything about this. I mean, you could just imagine, you know, that, that sense of just horror and revulsion, like well, what, you know, with, with this, what you were being, what you were born in. We often talk of that sort of period in this country as people sort mm. of rebelling against their parents' generation, and obviously yeah. in Germany, that's that's got that whole other other sort of yeah. layer to it as well. I mean, it was paradoxical because it was strange. It, it, it was people were born into a sort of prosperity or whatever. Mm. It wasn't a sort of alienation, dissipation that comes from poverty or whatever. It wasn't a sort of anti-Thatcher thing or, or the kind of punk thing. It was a reflection of what was seen as the kind of the moribund. Mm-hmm. Sort of like the UK, you know, these were people that were kind of, you know, welfare. There'd been a kind of material economic miracle in West Germany, and there was great sort of prosperity, but there hadn't been a sort of a moral miracle, whatever. You know, just I mean, in the, I think in the early fifties, um, there was a survey taken in which only five percent of West Germans, this is only five percent of West Germans, felt they had any reason to be guilty towards the Jews, mm-hmm. and this at a time when they pretty much restored, you know, the e- economic prosperity to the country. But also, that's an economic prosperity that's done by. You know, somebody else, the Marshall Plan, yeah, American yeah, yeah. money. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's to say, I mean, it was, it was, it was. I think it was twin thing, wasn't? It? I think it was, so. It was the Marshall Plan, but it was also, I think, almost kind of you know this sort of sublimation of like energies or whatever into sort of really sort of dedicating yourself mm-hmm. to the sort of you know, the material rebuilding, possibly as a kind of way of not having to face up to other realities. You know, just put your head down, dig, work hard, um, get things back right there. And I think there was a lot of a hell of a lot of investment, sort of psychologically speaking. I think there was a hell of a lot of investment in just getting the country back to. Sort of, sort of material prosperity, where very little sort of effort put into kind of moral reflection. You've touched on it a bit, but let's say again how you define Krautrock in this book. What bands are in? What sort of? Yeah, I mean the, the common. common well, for instance, yeah, the common countries. For instance, there were other bands that were kind of part of the counterculture that I've talked about, who were much more explicit about it. There was kind of a protest folk. There were kind of bands that were much almost like kind of more punkish and were very kind of explicit, you know, about mm-hmm. their kind of complaints and grievances. And one of the things about Krautrock is it doesn't really. It's much more kind of. You know, it clearly is defined by the trauma of like the Second World War or whatever, mm-hmm. because they talk about that. I mean, some like Ralph Hultrat of Traffo said, "We have no fathers." You know, they really felt they had to kind of reconnect in their particular case with, say, things like the Bauhaus movement. Groups like Can, you know, felt that they had to sort of, you know, get, you know, they had to sort of forget, you know, what, what happened previously. They had to build something from scratch. So I think that's one of the first things. All of these bands, I think, feel this need to begin again. You have to sort of reassemble music, almost as if music has never been made before. You know, you have to make a kind of a new start. You know, on this sort of, you know, there's a sense of cultural rubble, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and, you, and ruins, whatever. And then you have to rebuild using that as a basis which from a musical point of view is tremendously exciting you know means all kinds of sort of new shapes new forms new impetus the embrace of like things like electronics which you know rock anglo-american rock does really tend to be really rather conservative and was really kind of you know synths and stuff like synths well not well synthesizers were very expensive but there were all kinds of electronic devices and that were available but there was a sense they were kind of fake and inauthentic but you know with these these West German groups, you know, positively embraced that kind of thing because they saw the possibilities of 
you know, the, you know, they saw you know, innovative properties that these things had. You know, the, the kind of the, the shapes and the form, you know, the forms, the color. You know, the way you could sort of colorize music all of a sudden, the directions in which you could sort of, you know, take the sound. So that was a really important thing. There were various other things. There was a sort of an aversion to the lead singer, and quite often both both Can and Kraftwerk say this. They, you know, they don't. They, they, they tend to operate as collectives. They say, you know, that the idea of like the hierarchy that you normally have with a group with a front man and then and then perhaps a guitarist and then you know in a subordinate role, you know, the bass and the drummer holding down the back seat. And they didn't like the idea of the sort of self-glorification, you know, that comes with a lot of rock music and that vast ego. Because, as I explicitly said, you know, we have that with a certain Mr. Adolf Hitler, you know, the Nuremberg rallies, and, which have often been compared, you know, with the sort of euphoria he whipped up <laughs> as being not dissimilar. I mean, people like Liebach are quite good on this, you know, the, the uncomfortable similarity between a certain strain of rock music and the Nuremberg rallies, you know, the kind of that sort of slightly inebriated euphoria in which people <laughs> can be whipped up, you know, by a kind of very charismatic single person standing up there on the stage. So there was a, was very much of an aversion to that. So consequently, this is why things, you know, so, so that kind of collectivism in the way they kind of make the music affects the sort of nature of the music. It tends to be kind of, have more of a sort of fluidity about it. You know, the kind of various musical elements are kind of free-floating. Do you think also that that, really subsequently, we'll perhaps talk later about why most of these bands didn't really sort of break out. Mm. It's not until much later that they had their sort yeah. of legacy. Is that something to do with that, do you think? I mean, perhaps if, if, if each of these bands had some sort of iconic lead singer, they would have been... Well, yeah, popular. I mean, I think, yes, absolutely. You know, the fact that they didn't, they didn't play the game. They didn't mm-hmm. play the game that should be played. And I mean, the thing about what they didn't really succeed in doing was like inventing a new set of rules that would then make them immensely popular. Yeah. I mean, that just didn't happen. And... You know, mostly one thing a lot. Again, another thing. Whether it was like Amundul, you know, operating out of a commune system, whether it was Can operating out of Slushnovenich um, or Faust at this kind of boomer complex out in the countryside, all of these bands tended to kind of work in a sort of like in sort of hermetic isolation, Kraftwerk in the Klinklang studio. So that meant that they weren't going to be meddled with by the kind of you know, as it were, the sort of the commercial record industry or whatever, you know, with sound engineers imposed on them or mm-hmm. whatever. They could sort of go there, they could sort of start from scratch, make their own rules. You know, they could go into the studio, you know, they didn't even have to have pre-recorded, because it wasn't really a song-based thing very much. So they just go and start playing and then see what happened. Very, very experimental indeed from that point of view. But what's ironic is that, and it's an irony that persists to this day, is that there were prophets without honour saving their own country, that West Germans themselves didn't really embrace these groups at all and still don't really. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard, quite often, you know, to, in terms of like when they were kind of trying to get gigs and things like that. Obviously, some people would turn up, but quite often humiliatingly small numbers. Um, Michael Wilson out of Neue talks about when he was with the group Harmonia driving about, you know, sort of 300 kilometres a gig, at which only two people turned up, you know, in the mid 70s. And these kind of things happened, and they didn't really. Germans weren't really and still aren't impressed by this legacy. So that was a problem then and it remains a problem now. But they were only, it was only when actually France was the first country that started taking the music seriously. First France, then the UK, fairly quickly afterwards, and then eventually, gradually, the rest of the world years later. I'm Olivia Lang, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. You mentioned that sort of post-68 energy that a lot of these bands were sort of fomented mm. in. Mm. And that gradually, in, in Germany, I guess as, as everywhere else, but specifically in Germany, sort of dissipates into the early 70s. Mm. And you get things does, like, yeah. you know, the, the RAF, the, the Red Army yeah, yeah, faction, yeah. and eventually the Bader Meinhof group. Yeah. To what extent were this musical movement... Involved in that sort of political scene. Yeah, there was very there was very little overlap at all, really. I mean, you'll occasionally hear stories of like obviously the kind of 
commune type existence that we've had in places like Amundel or whatever, in Munich or whatever, mm-hmm. occasionally there might have been some sort of intersection on the kind of periphery. But there's almost, I think people almost like want there to be some sort of correlation between Baden-Meinhof and, you know, the sexy terrorism of the Baden-Meinhof group and Krautrock, and there's very little at all. One thing they do have in common is that, of course, most of those groups, even Krautrock early on, they had long hair. They had, they looked like hippies. They looked like they could be you know, they, they look like they could be members of the Malahide group and consequently suffered in terms of, like, you know, stop and search and arrest. You know, they, they, they really suffered. I mean, um, John Vinesil, Vinesil who, who I interviewed from Alan he said that he couldn't believe it when he came to England looking the way that he did and that he was just treated so civilly. He said that is just not the case in West Germany. And I think the reason for that was, obviously, the suspicion of, like, if you look like that, well, there's chances mm-hmm. are you're a terrorist of some sort. So they suffered a lot of, you know, prejudice as a result of that. But the actual Bader-Meinhof group themselves, I mean, they, there's no evidence evidence that they sh- there was no real kind of crossover at all and as I was pointed out in the book that when Andreas Bader died and they went into his cell they found his record player it was an Eric Clapton record on, on the- <laughs> he was an Eric Clapton fan which you know is very dismaying in some ways so yeah the answer that there's I mean you know, there's been elements of wishful thinking sometimes about the overlapping crap rock and violin but there's they were opposite extremisms. I want to talk later about the subsequent influence on other bands of, of the mm. rock movement, but let's talk about what influenced them. And you've talked about this idea that they explicitly rejected British and American sure. sort of rock music. But, so what yeah. were their what well, were their roots? Well, paradoxically, see, although that was the case, nonetheless, groups like, for instance, Pink Floyd were very influential. Mm-hmm. And so were Velvet Underground, who Edmund Schmidt out of Cannes was greatly impressed with when he went to America. But I think in the way that, that what impressed Edmund Schmidt Velvet Underground is he felt that they were, kind of, you know, they were going back to sort of first principles, back to absolute sort of basics, whatever, and, and, mm-hmm. and you know, and a sort of like an application of minimalist principles to rock music. So they themselves were kind of involved in sort of rejecting a certain mm-hmm. kind of model of music. And Pink Floyd, obviously, on the album Amagama, for instance, the live album there, has a very sort of proto-cosmish feel, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that a lot of people like Ashrod Temple, they sort of took up where Pink Floyd left off there. So, yeah, there is a paradox there that, in fact, certain British groups, you know, in the psychedelic phase and one or two American groups definitely were influential. Um, obviously, Stockhausen is, um, is somebody that kind of hangs over all of this and a whole Shukai and... Uh, was a pupil, you know, from Cannes. He was a pupil of, of Stockhausen. And Stockhausen, I suppose, who was born in 1926, um, he was young enough, he would have been a member of the Hitler Youth, which was obligatory, you know, I mean, there was no getting around that. He lost both his parents in the Second World War, and he emerged as a teenager. And I think that his instinct then was to kind of, his own instinct, I think, was to kind of make a music. He was working, I mean, electronic music was now a kind of possibility, and there were all kinds of sort of ways of, of like making music that could be kind of just. You know, generated by that means, and, and I think he, there was an appeal there about a music that was utterly untainted, you know, mm-hmm. by this kind of fallen world, that something that could be absolutely new in origin, that was almost like that was out there, you know, in space or whatever. And so, you know, so for him, he, he preferred that approach to kind of facing up to what going on. It was too traumatic, I think, to kind of have some sort of explicit biographical, autobiographical reflection you know, on what he kind of been through. I think that you know, there's almost a sense in which the music is a solace mm-hmm. of Stockhausen, as well as being extremely challenging. But it's a kind of a solace, you know. And it's and that's actually true for crap rock as well, because they say they don't. There are fleeting occasions. There, is, there, there are fleetingly there's references to the you know there's a crap track one of the early albums you know of which you get the sense of like bombers kind of hoving overhead and um, you know the sound of um, aerial warfare or what have you. But by and large, the music is. It's healing music, it's fertile, it's creative, it's the sort of, it's the, the green shoots, you know, over the kind of, you know, the stony rubble. So I think that Stockhausen was definitely, yeah, he, he was definitely a forefather of the whole thing, although Stockhausen himself wasn't very impressed by the music. But even so, there's, there's, there's something interestingly, some intellectual foundations there. Mm. I can't imagine many British 60s and 70s rock bands would be, you know, would be claiming to be influenced by sort of avant-garde composers. Mm. No, absolutely. But I think there's a kind of... I mean, I suppose, you know, in, in German culture, I mean, lots of these bands would have played, you know, especially on Dusseldorf, you know, they'd have played in galleries. That was a perfectly natural mm-hmm. thing to do. And I think and that's a big contrast there with the English rock scene, where although a lot of them went to art school, that was kind of for the dots, really, or whatever. And, and there's a lot of resistance to anything kind of arty. Mm-hmm. And the idea that it was art, art, you know, arty, arty, farty, pretentious, um, if he'd, even John Lennon, despite his latest things with Yoko Ono, that's... That, that was his attitude. And it's reflected in the music, and it's, it's clearly not an interest in treating rock. I mean, this is why Brian Eno is so important when he eventually mm-hmm. emerges. He's almost like an honorary crowd rock. He's 
completely unabashed about the idea of like creating music with titles as if it's kind of watercolours or whatever, you know, and sort of taking interest in, in the form of music as, you know, more so even than the content, you know, and therefore helped me inaugurate things like ambient music. But, you know, he was very much in sync with what people like Ashrod Temple were doing um, and what Can were doing and, you know, into a extent what people like Noy were doing. Um, so Brian Eno was very much in sync mm-hmm. with those people and it became a very important sort of bridge build, you know, between people like, you know, so Noy and Kraftwerk and David Bowie. So... Why, David, do you like this stuff? Tell us about when you first discovered it. <laughs> well, actually, this is the air. I mean, this was as a kid. I was, I mean, I was a football fan. I'm sure, like, well, if you, if you ever are a football fan, you're a football fan probably before you're a serious music fan. I remember watching games in the early 1970s that were broadcasts from Europe, you know, and it's quite often involving Germany, West Germany, teams mm-hmm. like Bayern Munich. And back then, you could read, there was a real sense of otherness about games that were broadcast from abroad. You, know, you could tell there was, on two counts, first of all, the, the, sound, the commentary sound like it was having to be phoned in. You know, the, there was a bit of a blur around the images because, you know, they were coming via satellite or whatever. But also, whereas football crowds in this country tend to be a sort of slightly boorish and, and charmed, when you, European games, they tend to be this kind of, this wall of sound, you know, this kind of chorus of air horns that was just relentless throughout. And I just found that mesmerising. And I just loved these kinds kind of incessant drones and I just I think I became slightly kind of in love with all that and all the kind of exotic associations of otherness with all of that you know at a young age that I think that was my that was my first inkling of that sort of Teutonic otherness that I kind of found in sort of you know the, in the crowd rock sound so yeah and I studied German a little bit at school and I think I became a sort of a, a Germanophile actually you know, post-war West Germany actually seemed to me, you know, in, in, in the late 70s, actually to be, for all the kind of social problems that were there, it seemed to be a very kind of cool and quite kind of advanced culture mm. in lots of ways. So I definitely became kind of a Germanophile. I just had a sense that they did things better in West Germany. What happened in Germany after this period then? Post-77, what yeah. happens to German music? Well, it's odd, really, because all kind of things are kind of out of sync. For instance, in popular culture, by the time... I mean, Krautrock, most of those groups have kind of petered out, they've gone straight, they've split up by about 1976-77, with the exception of Krautrock, mm-hmm. who then go on to build their enormous... They've become massive after that. Yeah, that's really, right, yeah. yeah. But they do they are, they are do belong, you know, mm-hmm. in, this, in, in this tradition and, and, you know, in this category, as it were. But, yeah, I mean, politically, I think there is... It's, it's, it's ironic. I mean, there's a sort of... On a cultural level, I mean, you've got things like that film Hitler, a film from Germany in 1977. You've got, I mean, the Bader Meinhardt group really comes to a sort of crest in terms of their activities. And you've also got, actually, the one thing that was a real awakening was actually that American series, Holocaust, which is a very Americanized sort of tale. You know, they've got the family, the Weiss family. They don't even go, they don't even go to the Weiss family, but they deliberately Americanized it to give it universal mm-hmm. appeal. And that actually was then sold back to Germany. And that actually, and that had a huge impact, that series. That may have done more to kind of popularize or awaken people to sort of some of the realities of the Holocaust. Than, than, than any other thing, ironically. In terms of music, well, punk was just happening then. And obviously, much as it did in the UK, well, it very much did in the UK, it kind of like cleaved rock history in half, you know, and there was a real sort of BCAD type feel mm-hmm. about punk. And so what happened in West German music, you had what's called the Neudeutsche Welle, the New Wave, and you have groups like Einstutz and Neubauten and DAF and Der Plan. And in lots of ways, they're very different from the crowd rock groups. They're much more song-based. They're much, they sing in German in a very kind of harsh, guttural, in-your-face, aggressive terms. They're very explicit politically. And yet at the same time, what they've got in common with Can, with Faust, all those groups, is that... They're innovative. They're interested in deconstruction, reconstruction of the song, you know, and finding new shapes and new ways of making music.
You're listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny and today I'm talking to David Stubbs and we're talking about his book Future Days, Crouch Rock and the Building of Modern Germany. And so David, let's in this half look at some of the bands. Amondo, first of all, and they absolutely symbolise the not only the, the growth out of the, of the mm. commune system mm. of, of Crouch Rock, but they have this really weird genealogy and loads of confusing releases. Well, this is it, because, well, the thing is, there's Amondul and there's Amondul 2. And Amondul 2 were basically the musicians. So Amondul originally, it was just like a free-for-all. If you just pick up an instrument and just make a noise, a very, very sort of, you know, so music isn't really, you know, music is just an expression of just absolute inclusive liberalism. And I think Amondul 2 said, no, we can be a little bit more serious about this. So they broke away and they kind of made proper records, you know, where they, you know, they, could, they felt it was actually important to be able to play. You couldn't mm-hmm. just drone wail away or whatever. So a schism developed there. In fact, Amondul, the original collective, they made about three or four albums, but they're all essentially cut from the same set of recordings. You know, they didn't really kind of go on. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You know, there was just the same sort of blaring, waiting, catawalling kind of noise or whatever. All you know, they, they just grabbed it all together and made out as if they got you know this body of work, and it wasn't really at all. And Amundul too, they are very much um, the wing that were inspired by, I think, you know, sort of like the predominant sort of UK type psychedelia. And I mean, what's interesting about them, especially on their early albums, is there's almost kind of you know, in terms of like the use of improv, there's a sort of sense of sort of collage and sort of pushing together out in, in, in the way that like people like the Mothers of Invention were doing mm-hmm. around the same sort of time. But the only thing about Amandul is they kind of trail off. I think ultimately they probably weren't as interested in in some of the other bands in creating sort of new forms that would be their kind of signature or whatever. I think it was really their ambition to become some sort of mainstream, neo-psychedelic, underground-type band or whatever. Yeah, they do sound and, most you know, like the more, a rock band. That's right. Does, and eventually, yeah. you know, they, they, and the further you go on, they, 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 they just become a conventional rock band, which sometimes happens with experimental music. And it happens quite, you know, it's the story of all these people. What sound, you know, they sound really interesting early on, but they themselves think, no, we are experimental in the sense we're trying different things out. We don't think a lot of this stuff works. We actually want to be pretty much so, you know, we'll consider ourselves complete when we're what people like me would consider conventional. I mean, there's no much that with Tangerine Dream, for instance, as well. But they are interesting around the world because I think in the timeline, you know, they are the first, and there is, you know, there's the sense that like they're in an evolutionary sort of timeline of the genre. I think the fact that they kind of almost like jump out of the sort of pool of the whole kind of commune thing that's going on into you know sort of actually making sort of serious recordings. But as is sometimes the case, you know, the earlier the better, um, definitely. So as we, as we go through these bands, yeah, recommend us some stuff that, that listeners should, should try if they if they want to. I've been listening to Yeti on yeah. Repeat, I mean, there you go. Is, well, this is it. Yeah. I think yeah, I think start you know start start with Yeti and and, and there thereabouts, and I think yeah, you can't. 
go wrong. Yeah. Okay, so can let's let's move mm. on to can. You mentioned this idea earlier of um, failure of the denazification of mm. West Germany. It can come out of Cologne, which is mm. which is a place which did have a you know a mayor, a politician who was right up until the nineteen eighties was was. Apologetic yeah. Nazis. Well, yeah, absolutely. Although I think Cologne, you know, people like to think that they sort of put up slightly stiffer resistance than some other areas of Germany. But obviously, yes, they, you know, they, they suffered greatly. You know, Cologne was raised to the ground, except, you know, obviously the church is maintained. I mean, the church is almost like a symbol of the distinctive character for me of Cologne, actually, with this kind of very, very kind of rich and vivacious and slightly anarchic, whatever, and um, with a kind of, you know, a sort of a lust for life. You know, and, and if you think of like Dusseldorf, it perhaps sort of tidier and more tapered in lots of ways. You know, there seems to be a real distinctive. This is one of the great things about you know, much as in the whole post-punk scene, where say Liverpool and Manchester mm-hmm. had distinctive characters that were reflected in the bands. Liverpool had bands with extravagant titles like Teardrop Explodes, Echo and the Bunnymen, Hamby and the Dance, whatever. Then you go over to Manchester, it's more bleak and laconic. The Fall, the Passage magazine. You get a similar thing, I think, with Dusseldorf and Cologne, but obviously Cannes are the great exponents mm-hmm. of Cologne music at the time. But, you know, they, I mean, having said that, you know, they, they're even today, I mean, Jack Liebertside, the drummer of Cannes, I mean, he, he lives in Cologne. I mean, there should be a statue of Jack Liebertside, but he says, you know, I go to Bolivia on land, you know, they get mobbed by fans there, I come back to Cologne, I'm completely ignored. And it was, I went around them, you know, all day in Cologne, no one, even in the arts complex where he worked, no one particularly seemed to know who he was or pay him any great mind. But, um, no, no, I mean, can are probably... I mean, some people might say, you know, they are... I mean, Crapper perhaps sort of had the most far-reaching achievement. Can are perhaps the greatest of, of the bands that I talked about. I was unfamiliar with a lot of this music. I'd mean, heard the names, but were actually unfamiliar with, with the sound. As I said, Amon Dool sounded to me like, a, you know, like mm. an early 70s rock band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas Can sounded to me like what I expected mm. rock to sound like. And they've got that yeah. signature... I mean, you just talked about uh, Jackie Liebersit, the drummer, and his yeah. drumming technique is, is quite... Well, he's, he's, about that. Yeah, well, he's, 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 he's an a really important figure because he comes out of the kind of, actually, the jazz world, mm-hmm. whatever. But somebody who, probably in the very early 1960s, when it was a very difficult thing to do, who had kind of... He, he managed to get hold of albums of, like, Indian music and whatever, and so he'd seen sort of alternative, oriental, as it were, ways of music making. Jazz in the 60s became very, very really kind of quite extreme, the days of so-called free jazz, but he didn't consider it free at all. I mean, he considered it a bit like 20th century classical music that Ermin Schmidt was sort of steeped in, you know, which he called Stalinist. He considered it ridden with dogma, actually. You know, it, it purports to be free and chaotic, but it's actually nothing of the sort. And Jackie Liebertside, I think, sort of seized on this sort of paradox that in order to be truly free, you have to be almost mechanical, you have to be incredibly repetitious and tight, and, and from there, freedom flows. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so can, I mean, that's always the thing that's running through can, is these kind of very cyclical, repetitive style, you know, drumming styles that he does, that are really not, nothing else that you'll find in rock music. And what that does, that, that enables that enables a kind of, what, flow motion, as is one of the titles of one of their tracks, you know, so all the other elements are then able to kind of free float. I mean, you know, the, the drums are kind of actually unmoored from their traditional role. They're not sort of pegged to the kind of conventional sort of patterns of, like, blues-based rock. And the music kind of levitates. And it's also a strange thing, but everybody else in the group has the same attitude. Ermin Schmidt is a classically trained keyboardist. I mean, he could sort of, if he wanted to, he could, out, he could have outprogged like Rick Wakeman or any of the, or Keith Emerson or any of those people, you know, in terms of his virtuosity. Mm-hmm. But he saw no point in being a virtuoso. You know, he was more interested in the idea of ideas and aptitude, which was actually a very punk idea. He happened to have the training, but he would prefer to kind of just stick a finger in, you know, in the middle of the keyboard and just make a kind of drone if that was what was required, or make kind of helicopter-type noises or whatever, or suddenly shift the music in another direction by karate chop, you know, to the keyboard. And Holger Shukai played bass, but again, he played it in a very similar spirit to um, uh, Jack Liebesite on the drums, quite often simply sort of repeating a sort of particular note and droning over it. So there's a sort of mantric feel, and so... In the middle of that, you've got the guitarist, Michal Karoli, who was a relatively conventional sort of guitarist, but you get the feeling that everybody in the group is kind of making space for everybody else. Mm-hmm. They're all, you know, somehow there's an immense amount of space in the music. And in the midst of that, you've got two vocalists, Malcolm Mooney and then Dan Suzuki, who don't, they're not like traditional frontman vocalists. Malcolm Mooney, I think it's almost like, I mean, he had a nervous breakdown. It's as if, and sometimes when he's singing, it's as if the music is driving him to distraction because he's sort of caught in this sort of free flowing maelstrom of sound. And then Don Suzuki, you know, this Japanese guy, he had this kind of very delicate voice, and as if it's been kind of buffeted here and there, floating, you know, on this kind of ether that's been created. 
and then other times, you know, he's he's kind of shrieking hysterically or whatever, you know. So, you know, there's a, there's a wonderful structure, you know, this wonderful way that they configure themselves to just release these kind of new energies from what was actually a conventional, relative conventional lineup instrument wise. James Ward, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's go on to Faust, who mm. are a sort of another collective, and the stories of all these weird, arty happenings and naked people on stage. And stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. again, a completely different type of thing. Well, Faust are a strange group because they were assembled from Uwe Nettelberg, who was kind of commissioned by, I think, a, a major German record label. To create what they were, a new German Beatles, although it was simple enough. You know how the Beatles were in the sixties. Well, let's have a Beatles of our own, a German Beatles. And I think you know, this is an idea he kind of sold to them, or an idea that you know that they mutually sort of hatched hatched together. And so he took a bunch of musicians from two middling prog bands at the time in West Germany, put them together with this um, producer, and sent, packed them off to this place of I think it was a disused school or something like that. You know, this complex in which you know they all had separate rooms and they could all play and jam and just see what they come up with, you know, so this absolute freedom really mm. to sort of build, build something anew, you know, to sort of, you know, build this great new thing. But what they actually produced was clearly had no commercial prospects whatsoever. I mean, it's a sort of neo dadaist kind of collage of sort of barrages of electronics, sudden sort of moments in whistle be chronic folk, uh, mock brass bands, sort of, you know, whatever. It's actually, it's, I mean, the first album is actually a very, very beautiful thing, but it does remind you of that kind of, is it the exquisite cause game, you know, where, where, where you know, you, you just take sort of disparate, or like a Tristan Sara thing, where, you know, you tear up sort of, you know, like a sheet of word or whatever, and then put them in a hat and throw them in the air and mm-hmm. see where the line, there's your poem. And, and they're almost like a kind of sonic realisation of that idea of Faust. Possibly my own, I mean, although Can are probably the greatest, Faust are probably my own favourite band of that, that particular genre, and they're, they're the ones that tend to get overlooked. Um, but at the time, they actually had, a, you know, they had quite a high profile because, you know, they had a lot of money behind them in Germany, you know, since they were supposed with the German Beatles, though, I think the record company mm. heard when they got the first album through, they, they were utterly aghast. They allowed them <laughs> to make one more album, so can you at least make the tracks a bit short, you know, like one side dedicated to a kind of free-form jam. And then, of course, then they were dropped you know, in Germany, and then they were left destitute. I mean, this place that they've been working in, they sort of turned overnight, you know, everything had gone, the fiction and fittings and everything. Mm. They had to live on dog food for a while. They were just utterly left high and fire. But then Virgin in the UK found out about them. So in 1973, they came over to um, the UK, and yeah, they did play various gigs that sort of this is quite legendary from people there because there were just yeah there were all kinds of things going on stage where people they have pinball things set up they have pinball machines cement mixers a sofa on stage they kind of play when they felt like it you know they didn't didn't obey you know, completely fine disregard for any of the kind of rules conventions of what a rock gig is supposed to be but unfortunately they didn't really get along with Richard Branson or the whole Virgin setup and then had a manor studio and again it's a problem if they're not actually allowed to kind of record under their own conditions then it just didn't really work for them although they made a Faust 4 was a lovely album and then they just gradually sort of went and drifted apart and then went their separate ways um, and yet amazingly they 20 years later they all kind of reunited again and just pretty much in the mid 90s by which point you know they gained a sort of retrospective kind of kudos. And there they were again, you know, down in, um, you know, in Islington, and so we've been playing gigs, you know, the old cement mixers are out again, just, you know, the power tools, all that kind of stuff. The stuff they've been doing back in the early 70s. Let's move on to Kraftwerk, who are, you know, by far the biggest name, mm. the one band that most people 
will have heard, most people listening will have heard of. And I think also, weirdly, most people would, not being familiar with, with the concept of kraut rock, would probably mm. think of the sort of visual style mm. of, of craft work as being that sort of, you know, Teutonic looking mm. like robot mm. type thing. At the same time, the craft work that we know is probably the furthest from the, yeah, the musical style yes. that, yeah. that you describe here, but that wasn't the case to begin with. No, so it wasn't at all. So they, they started off actually as part of this collective, you know, the first album in 1970 called The Organisation, mm-hmm. and on the instrument organ, you know, that Ralph Butcher played. And yeah, to be honest, I mean, you look at it, they're almost like a practically on the nose parody of, of, of yeah. crowd rock. I mean, you know, there's, there's bongos, there's flute solos. You know, there's long hair in abundance, there's, you know, there's colour, there's all the kind of sort of things you would associate, you know, with some sort of stereotype of crowd roll. But gradually they kind of move away from that. I mean, one of the key things, you know, that they move, you know, Klaus Dinger, who was eventually drummer with Noy, was originally playing with them. But then they decided that drum machines were a little bit more interesting. And on the various albums, I think they love this kind of wonderful you know, the rolling pulse that you get, you know, with, you know, and in fact, one time, Ralph was talked about being at a party, and um, he just sort of set it going, with this drum machine, and it was about 1971, you know, it's a party, and then just leaves it on, and then goes out into the sort of crowd, and they just dance that, you know, for ages and ages, which was um, a similar epiphany that you got with people like DJ Cool Herg in America, you know, prior to sort of things like hip-hop, that you could be just sort of go from the sort of, you know, the breakbeats of one 12-inch to another, whatever, you can create this kind of independent groove, you know, that people can just dance to all night. Well, yeah, the craft were doing that back in 1971. So that was one aspect of the music. So now it's got this kind of electronic underpinning. And then I think they developed a sort of art sensibility. They, they clearly were influenced by Gilbert and George um, because the album Ralph and Florian, you know, they're sort of posing in a similar sort of way and Florian Schneider is suddenly looking very dapper and sort of mock urbane. Um, Ralph Butcher is still a bit lank looking whatever but he's, he's not quite made as good an effort but it's almost like you know that we are we are the artwork we are ourselves you know the, we are the work you know our kind of presence you know within this music is somehow the subject and paradoxically as with Gilbert and George that's a good way of actually preserving your privacy by sort of presenting yourself as the artwork somehow or other I mean it's like what do people really know about Gilbert and George in private life they give away everything paradoxically give away nothing mm-hmm. you know and that's always been the case with crap work we've always been Ralph Porter is exceptionally private, even though there they emphatically are, you know, their whole sort of bodies, you know, they're on the stage with their robot doppelgangers or what have you. So with Ralph, yeah, Ralph and Florian, you know, they suddenly take on that kind of slightly more art sensibility. And then what's sad about Kraftwerk in a, in, in a slightly wistful way, I always get wistful about Kraftwerk, is that you look at um, early sort of YouTube stuff of them, and you'd think they were essentially a kind of the Florian Schneider trio, some sort of neo-jazz combo that was essentially a showcase for the tall bloke and these kind of like extended flute solos. But then gradually, the last, his flute then disappears from crap, you know, the less sort of crap rock it becomes. So by the time of Autobahn, it makes its very last appearance. You know, what seemed to be the kind of the key instrument, you know, the centrepiece of the music, then disappears altogether and they become this pure sort of electronic quartet. You know, must have been quite a sort of. They must have actually sort of had a discussion about it and said, "Look, for the sake of the music, you you know, for the sort of great good, you're going to have to sacri- the sacrifice the flute." Yeah. So it makes its last appearance on autobahn. It conveys the sense of like rolling verdant hills as they're kind of bowling along the kind of the grey ribbon of the sort of dual carriageway. And yeah, it's so at that point, you know, they yes, they obviously become at that point, you know, the an, the antithesis mm-hmm. of what people's stereotypical notions of crowd rock, but. They've actually built on that. I mean, they've, they've evolved, and in fact, their foundations are very kind of crouched. And there is this, at the same time, there is this kind of imperative to kind of, you know, especially the imperative of innovation, of electronics, of it not really being about, there's no choruses or whatever, and, and mm-hmm. the vocals are, are deliberately inverted commas weak and rather fey or whatever. So there's all these kind of things, even crap at their kind of peak, you know, that 1974 to 1986 phase, mm-hmm. even then, they've still got things in common with groups like Can, you know, they don't sound the same. But there are certain that they share common principles. But why did they? Why did Kraftwerk break out when none of the other bands really did in the same way? Yeah, and I think it was because I mean they understood that the future is electronic. I mean they understood in the way that David Bowie did. I mean rock music just seemed to be. I mean I think this is why David Bowie. I think and he's obviously a very important figure in all of this. David Bowie. I think he's languishing in L.A. in 1975. He's just drugged up to the gills. He's in an appalling state. His life is an absolute shambles. But he's surrounded by people in a similar state. I mean, you know, like people like The Who and like John Lennon and Harry Nielsen, all these people kind of living it up. And I think he understood, that, you know, that all those people that really dominated the late 60s, they've, 
they've lost their edge, they're kind of bloated, they're driving Rolls Royces into swimming pools. But that is a kind of narrative that's run its course, and that kind of, you know, like the whole West Coast Rock thing, you can see that its days are numbered, and these great figures, they're, they're just sort of boozy legends now, but their days are numbered. And at some level, something stirs in him, he thinks, I've got to have a dialectical shift here, there's got to be a dialectical shift, we've got to go from west to east. And he does it in all kinds of banal, slightly crass ways. I mean, at one level, he just... I think he goes to Berlin because he imagined it's going to be like Christopher Isherwood land or whatever. He's also got a very morbid and dubious, you know, preoccupation with Hitler mm-hmm. that manifests himself in later in very dubious statements about how a dose of fascism would be great for Britain and then the infamous supposed Nazi salute at Victoria Station. You know, all of that is all extremely dubious. But on the other hand, I think he understands. He goes there and he's introduced probably in a people like Brian Eno, who was working with at the time, introduced him to the music of like people, not just Kraftwerk, but also groups like... Um, Noy and Cluster and people like that and you know I think he understands that this is where the future lies that these that the preoccupation that these groups have had with invention is going to set them in it may not have set them in sort of good step you know for the sort of 70s their own time but they're laying the foundations they're creating the templates for future music and of course that's exactly what happened Kraftwerk perfectly understood that I mean people obviously mocked Kraftwerk they played up to that they were just this, you know they dressed in these kind of conservative suits they had short hair they sort of have this kind of banal, apparently banal, sort of benign embrace of, like, machinery, and, you know, whereas a true, passionate rock star would, you know, would, would scorn the inauthenticity and the fakeness of synthesizers as opposed to the realness of electric guitars. And, and, and they kind of, like, serenely overrode that. And, yeah, and people laughed at Kraftwerk, but Kraftwerk definitely had the last laugh because they understood that that was the future, and it was. I'm Alex Cox, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. So let's talk about that future then, the mm. legacy of Krautrock. If none of these bands, apart from Kraftwerk, became you know like massive, world-spanning sort of rock stars, mm. certainly the sound of their music is sort of omnipresent across mm. music nowadays. So let's start with where that starts with. How does their influence start to? Well, I think there's a general thing. So the first great wave of like Krautrock-inspired groups were the post-punk groups. Mm-hmm. Now a lot of those people, they would have been around, listening to music in the early 70s they would have seen Can, they would have seen Fats they would have been aware of Kraftwerk so we're talking about everybody from sort of Cabri Voltaire to Pete Shelley of the Buzzcocks even the Marquis Smith Outfall John Lydon there's a whole host Jim Kerr out of Simple Minds Ian McCulloch Bill Drummond even you know later on that. and I think that they all the, the Kraftwerk groups appeal to them because they're just fed up of prog rock they're fed up of like you know these sort of self-important triple albums and the emphasis on virtuosity as the thing and this mistaken idea that like groups perhaps like Yes Genesis and that ELP had that it was that rock needed to kind of graduate you know from its sort of adolescent 60s phase and that to gra- in order to graduate and become a more mature form it should be a bit more like classical music it was a kind of banal and sunny misunderstanding and something that Erwin Schmidt as somebody who actually was brilliantly classically trained you know he saw through that you know he saw through that at the outset he realised that that was a complete nonsense so I think that they if they were disaffected in those kind of you know in their late teens you know by prog rock then groups like Can and, and Faust and, and they were a godsend or whatever because they were approaching music from the point of view of concepts and ideas 
it was the ideas and not technical proficiency that counted. And I think that is so. Therefore, you know, they, they related to those groups, and then so when they kind of came into their own in sort of the late seventies. Also, I mean, like first of all, you know, David Bowie had given the whole thing his blessing, and that and sort of just generally turned minds around on the whole idea of like German music and um, you know this sort of new Teutonic cool that critics like John Savage kind of identified in sounds. And there was a general sense of like Europe being where it was at, you know, and you know, obviously it was it, it, so Europe generally was where it was at. There was a general re- rejection of the Americanization of music that came with punk, you know. I mean, whether it was just singing deliberately cockneyfied or provincial accents, or whatever. But Europe became, you know, they were looking east, they're looking to Europe and not to America in a way that music hasn't really done it to that extent since, really. I mean, you know, there was if you were a student, you were interrelating all over the place. So it was a kind of Europhilia. In anything from simple minds like travel or whatever, you know, going to like Bauhaus, Wire, all of those groups. That was the first great sort of wave of like, you know, crowd, that was the first great wave of crowd rock's legacy. There's a quite often quite a, a crass German Ophelia in some of those mm. bands, though, is it? Like yeah, Spandau Ballet, well, of course Joy it is. Well, definitely. I mean, absolutely, well. yeah. I mean, you know, it was pretty crass, definitely. <laughs> and this is the thing, you know, people. This is the trouble, I think. There was, yeah, people never, in, especially at that time, people didn't entirely eliminate a sort of slightly dubious, sort of Teutonic um, preoccupation that had some sort of slightly dubious elements. Yeah, and there's no doubt about it. I mean, Joy Division is a, is a particularly good example. I mean, luckily their music is so great. They're such a brilliant band that you, in their case, you just, you, you somehow end up sort of overlooking it. But no, Joy Division was a horrendous time for a group. If they'd have been rubbish, I mean, they'd have, I mean that's all you remember about them. Because they're brilliant, it's actually, oh yeah, actually the name was a bit dubious, wasn't it? Yeah, Spandau Ballet was, well, yes, it's a strange, yeah, that's almost like the kind of, almost the sort of flouncing sort of amorality of the new romantic movement. Bauhaus, I mean, I think they just picked it off the shelf, you know, because they don't really, the group Bauhaus don't embrace Bauhaus principles. Crackbook should have been called Bauhaus, if anyone's got more Bauhaus, is it like they've been too naff? Crackbook actually are the Bauhaus principles realise in popular music but yeah definitely that there was definitely a sort of europhilia and and of course because there was obviously the crowd which was so was predominant in that you know that was the first great wave of the um late 70s early 80s well the hip-hop is a kind of curious one i mean it's more like it was sort of tangential really what it was was kind of electro funk so with crowd mm-hmm. i mean they'd been in places like detroit in america even even they'd, they'd released a shortened version of autobahn back in you know in 75 in america that had like really really done well over there and i think that whereas a lot of sort of white Anglo-American rock fans would have a problem with like synthesizers and electronic music. You know, they had always, you know, as it's all association with like plasticity, inauthenticity, not real music. Rock music, real music. I think that in in black music, there's always been, and it's always been the case, there's always been a more futuristic strain. I mean, as I said earlier on, rock music does tend to be very, very conservative mm-hmm. and retrospective. But you know, if you're if you're frankly, you know, if you're black, if you're African American, you want to look to the future. You don't want to dwell on the past. Oh, weren't the fifties great? Weren't the sixties great? Not if you were black, they weren't. And I think this concept there's always been, you know, from groups like you know, sort of Sun Ra or whatever, you know, to sort of drum and bass, you know, wherever you look, you know, to sort of techno and things like that. There's always been much more of a sense of like, you know, space is the place, the future is the place, you know, because things are going to be better out there. You know, the things represent a better world, a better life. Which again, you know, I think is the reason why you know underground black music always tends to be at the kind of cutting innovative mm-hmm. edge, and I think that's the reason why there was a relationship, a strong relationship by people like Derek May, Africa Bambata back in '82 to to Kraftwerk or whatever. They related to it completely. Also, they found it funky. Derek May had this phrase: "Kraftwerk was so stiff, they're funky." You know. James Brown understood that. I mean, there's a very machinic element to sort of James Brown in the 60s and 70s or mm-hmm. whatever. You know, people think that somehow, you know, to be machinic is to be unblack in some way, but not at all. If you listen to James Brown in the late 60s, it's very, very, very tight indeed. Tight, repetitious, lot blue, and it almost sounds like, you know, it's, you know, sex machine. And it actually sounds like it is being produced by some sort of, some sort of pneumatic instrument. So, yes, there was, there was an obvious, you know, it seems a very unlikely thing, the idea of, like, you know, these cerebral types from Dusseldorf having this huge influence on black African-American music. But it actually, you know, but it does actually make sense the more you think about it. So, I mean, hip-hop is kind of tangential. So there was this planet rock, mm-hmm. um, Africa Van Bartome, that uses elements from the trans-European stress from 1977. And then there's, the, and there's a sort of tangential relationship when hip-hop really sort of gets into its own, you know, in sort of 83 with people like Run DMC, who aren't really directly influenced by Kraftwerk, but 
but certainly I think that you know the idea of like you, you know to, you take a sort of you know a sampled sort of backbeat um, or you create a backbeat and then you have a rapper on top well I mean you know there's a sort of clear antecedent there certainly definitely on, on the whole sort of techno thing that emerged out of place and, and the whole Chicago scene so the whole house techno thing that emerged mm-hmm. in the 80s and Mid eighties, everybody from Jeff Mills to Derek May, Juan Atkins. Clearly, you know, there's, there's, you know, they're clearly sort of there's a clear tip of the hat, to say the least, crap work. We've almost like laid down the kind of foundations. You know, there, you can really credit them being responsible for the electrification of modern music. I mean, because it's not just that. Of course, there's electro pop in the UK. You Gary Newman's, your orchestral music in the dance, your Depeche Mode's, all of whom sort of stuck around. Especially like a group like Depeche Mode. You think that the first fresh wind of fashion just blow them away? Mm-hmm. But you know, they had a long and enduring career. And then, final question then, I mean, do you think, obviously, you know, you, you've written this book, which is, you know, a great, big, thick tone to all mm. of these bands, but do you think now, finally, after all of that influence, that they are starting to get the, the recognition they deserve? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, and I think, in a way, just the event of a book like this, you know, inevitably just helps, helps with that. I actually, you know, proposed about ten years ago, and it, at that point it got knocked back, and I'm not quite sure... I mean, I could have written probably pretty much the same book then, you know, as it did now in lots of ways, except that, I mean, I, I would hope it inevitably becomes dated because each subsequent generation in the 90s and the noughties and each different way, a new generation of musicians mm-hmm. come along, embrace the music and sort of taking it on board in, in different kinds of ways. In the 90s, there was this whole Stereolab, Cosmische kind of type scene which tends to relate to a specific strain of the music. You know, it's, it's Future Days, obviously, with the title of the Can album. It's, 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 you know, that's, that's really what it's all about, that there's musicians yet unborn who will revisit this music that's so creative, so fertile, so sort of rich in potential and suggestions for new ways of doing things in, you know, in the perpetually conservative climate of, like, the music industry, even more conservative than ever. The, you know, I think the music will, you know, will continue, you know, the, these records will continue 40, 50, 60 years after they're made to be kind of touchstones. I've been talking to David Stubbs. We've been talking about his book, Future Days, Krautrock and the Building of Modern Germany, which is out now from Faber and Faber. David, thank you so much for coming in and talking to me about it. Well, thank you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89Up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, some great journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.